Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's show, those rapid home tests for COVID-19. What's their value as the pandemic continues to slow in the U.S.? We'll discuss with Dr. Wilbert Lamb from Emory University. Plus, land acquisition. It's the final frontier for a proposed spaceport in southeast Georgia, but residents are pushing back. And also, what's a spaceport? And also reporter Mary Landers from The Current joins us for the latest as the project goes before voters this week, talking about that spaceport. And a reporting project from The Intercept, which chronicled how the climate change crisis is presenting horrific conditions for those incarcerated here in the U.S. And we'll discuss that with journalist Eileen Brown. All those conversations coming up. But first this, U.S. Senator Raphael Warnock says he's open to all options the U.S. has to deal with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Senator Warnock spoke with reporters earlier today here in Atlanta. Russia's aggressive attack on Ukraine uh, cannot be tolerated. And so I am uh, grateful for the ways in which we have managed to uh, organize uh, the world in, in a unified voice to say that this cannot stand. And as a member of the United States Senate, I'll continue to look for other ways that we can uh, make it clear to Russia that, that this will not be tolerated. Calls are increasing for the United States to ban imports of Russian oil. That could push already rising gas prices even higher. The conflict has already caused U.S. gasoline prices to climb 45 cents a gallon in just the past week. In other news, former Georgia Governor Sonny Perdue will make more than $523,000 a year when he starts his new job as Chancellor of the University System of Georgia. A system spokesperson said Purdue's making the same salary as the last chancellor, Steve Wrigley, before he retired. Now, Purdue was a controversial choice to run the 26th university and college system that oversees some 340,000 students. Critics called out his lack of experience in academia, but the Board of Regents touted Purdue's executive leadership as governor and as the Trump administration's agriculture secretary before approving him for the chancellor post last week. And today it all begins. One of the most important weeks in the 2022 elections season kicks off today. Raul Bali has more on qualifying week getting underway at the Georgia State Capitol. State Democrats and Republicans have set up rooms across from each other on the second floor of the state capitol. That's where candidates will put down their money and officially qualify for the May 24th party primaries. This includes everything from governor and U.S. senator to state lawmakers to local constitutional offices like sheriff. Across the street in one of the offices for Georgia Secretary of State will be qualifying for nonpartisan races like the Georgia Supreme Court, along with third parties like the Libertarian Party. Qualifying runs through Friday. 
Raul Valley, WABE News. In other words, you can't win if you're not in. Finally, just two games until the Major League season, soccer season. Atlanta United is already missing two key players due to health reasons. The battered five stripes fell to the Colorado Rapids on Saturday, losing 3-0. to Milled fitter Ozzy Alonso had to sit out the match on the advice of a cardiologist. The team posted on its website he's being withheld as a precaution while they wait on test results. And forward, forward Luis Alero is out from a is out due to a hamstring injury he sustained in last week's game. So hopefully everyone will get healthy soon. Atlanta United returned to action against Charlotte FC on Sunday. This is Closer Look. <laughs> Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. What a weekend. It was beautiful. I joined some friends. We went walking, sunny skies, people out biking, walking the family pooch, playing beach volleyball, sand volleyball, and kids. So nice to see kids outside playing. But remember, this time two years ago, we were all preparing for a shift from these activities, all due to the coronavirus. And then came... Wash your hands very often or use hydroalcoholic gel. Be careful with the objects you touch and avoid touching your face. Keep a safe distance from others to protect yourself and them. If you use a mask, be careful not to touch it once you've put it on. The mask should cover your mouth and nose. Cough or sneeze into your elbow. (laughs) That educational video from Smile and Learn. And look how far we've come, especially with testing. Now there are do-it-yourself with rapid home tests now available also free from the government. Still, there are some lingering questions. How effective are these COVID rapid home tests? How do they work? How might they help in the efforts to slow the spread of COVID? Joining me now to talk about all of this is Dr. Wilbur Lamb, one of the three principal investigators for the Atlanta Center for Microsystems Engineered Point-of-Care Technologies. That's a lot to put on a business card. But they're tasked with evaluating COVID diagnostic tests as part of the NIH-supported Rapid Acceleration of Diagnostics program. Again, a lot. But among many affiliations, Dr. Lamb is a professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine, and he's also has worked with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Dr. Lamb, welcome to the program. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Before we get into now where we are in this phase of we can all test for COVID-19, did you think that we would get to this point two years ago? <laughs> that was, that's a really good question. I, I think there were a lot of doubters. Uh, you know, the average time it takes for a diagnostic test to be invented and go to the market is 10 years. And I think that's one success of the Radix program. We were able to compress that down to one year. And, you know, these tests uh, first became available beginning of 2021, and now they're everywhere. 
Well, someone listening says, well, okay, Dr. Lamb, you said normally it could take a decade. How does it, how do we get here? Does this also prove that perhaps women in science needs to do something? They're pressured that they can accelerate something like this? Yeah, it's a good question. I think with the right resources and the right people involved and all the various stakeholders, so the NIH was involved, the uh, Food and Drug Administration was involved, the medical device industry, and obviously the medical community, even the public, were all aligned to really get this uh, accelerated. And I think that was one major uh, accomplishment that we all collectively made as a society. Let's talk about your role in all of this, because as I as mentioned coming into this segment, you're one of three principal investigators for this Atlanta Center for Microsystems Engineered Point-of-Care <laughs> Technologies. What were y'all doing? Yeah, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, well, we, we, we call ourselves ACME for short. And yeah, well, all of this really started uh, about four or five years ago with my two colleagues. So uh, Professor Oliver Brand at Georgia Tech and Dr. Greg Martin over at Emory, the three of us were very interested in forming a coalition of technology developers and engineers over at Georgia Tech, the clinicians we have over at Emory and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, to really form a group of like-minded doctors and technology developers that was focused on developing point-of-care technology. So mm -hmm. these are diagnostic tests that are not done in the typical hospital setting. They could be done in the clinic, in the emergency room, ideally even at home. And the NIH saw that we had something here and about five years ago uh, funded us to establish the ACME Center. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, we were all called on a Zoom and we saw the director of the NIH himself. And, and it was then that the NIH said, we're launching this RADx program and you all in Atlanta, because of your clinical expertise, your large patient populations on the kids side, as well as the adult side and your engineering ex expertise, you will serve as our, what we call the test verification center. So really serving as the eyes and hands to for the NIH and to, to answer the question, do these tests work? Mm -hmm. And if they work, then the US government would de devote more resources to scale these tests up and make them as available as, as quickly as possible to the American public. So that's what we've been doing the last couple of years. And now we have these rapid home tests. You can get them at your local pharmacy. The government can send you some in the mail. Uh, but before we got to this phase, what questions would you have as a researcher, as a scientist, uh, to make sure that these tests are somewhat accurate? Because you also get that little disclaimer that says, <laughs> tests could be percentage, insert percentage here, that may not be accurate. Right, right. So what we've been doing for the last couple of years is really answering the question of, you know, do these tests work? Uh, we've been testing the tests, so to speak, different ways. We test them in the laboratory and we do that by using live virus. So at Emory University, we have what's called a biosafety level three facility where we have scientists, you know, doctors uh, Anurata Rao and, and Lita Bassett lead a team where they literally take these devices in and they'll put in live virus to measure, you know, what's the smallest concentration that this test could detect in terms mm -hmm. of viruses. Then we also test them on the clinical side. We have all these community sites that we've stood up since the very beginning of the pandemic, where we're offering uh, PCR testing for free for the entire Atlanta and Georgia community. We've been doing that for two years now, but at the same time, we collect another sample. Therefore, we get this kind of apples to apples comparison of how does this experimental test work compared to the standards. We've been doing that for the last two years. 
And to your specific question, yeah, we know that there's a certain level of what's called false negativity for mm -hmm. these rapid tests. But let me ask you, uh, are you willing to say that then rapid tests may not be as accurate as in the laboratory? Is that... So there's, yeah, there's two types of tests that, that I think uh, the, the, the public uh, is, is aware of. There's what's called the standard test, the PCR test, mm -hmm. and, and then there are these rapid tests. So the major differences really are that, uh, first of all, the PCR tests, they require, in general, a central laboratory. So you get and then they get moved over to a lab. You'll get a result in a day, two days sometimes. The rapid tests the major benefit is their accessibility, right? You can buy these at retail outlets and you can buy several of them. But we also know that the rapid tests compared to the PCR tests aren't as sensitive. There's a certain level of false negativity, meaning there can be people who are infected with the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and the test may actually be negative. However, what we also know is that, especially if they have symptoms, if you're able to test themselves, if they're able to test themselves mm -hmm. on the first day of symptoms or second day, third day, then that mitigates the effect somewhat. We are able to, over time, as we if we serially test, get better results for these specific tests. I have a question from a listener who says, so the at-home antigen tests, they are accurate. They are more accurate than some of the other ones. Is there a difference here? Yeah, so that's, that. it's... It, it's a hard question to answer without getting into nuance, right? Mm -hmm. That there, no test is perfect, and every test. Well, I think you just answered level. that. <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, I did. Yeah, it's really how you use them. Uh, so the. If you're able to use them serially, which many of these tests you can because you buy them in packs of two, sometimes mm -hmm. you can and you can buy several of these. And if they're accessible and available and you can afford them, uh, then, uh, yeah, being able to test them multiple times over the course of an illness, uh, that actually does increase the the accuracy quite a bit for these tests. But you're at your your listeners. Correct. Compared to the PCR test, it's not as sensitive. So then for if folks aren't able to get the, the tests from the government and they go into a store. And again, this is through your expertise, but what would you recommend? I mean, there's, there are about three or four different types that I've seen. So. Yeah. In, in general, the rapid tests are all similar in that the, the way these work, they, they work via something called an antibody test and, mm -hmm. and kind of like a, a pregnancy test. Except, you know, instead of peeing on the stick, you're, you're swabbing your nose. Dr. Right? Lamb, wanna... Dr. Lamb, would you <laughs> we'll have you back up, my friend? It's just... <laughs> it is not like a pregnancy test. Don't say that. <laughs> it is in no way. <laughs> well, well, how about this? It at least in some ways looks like like a pregnancy test, right? In terms no, of it does not. It does not. It changes, it changes color. Not the right? test I've so... seen. <laughs> And and certainly you don't want to be swabbing the different parts, right? Of, of the okay, Doctor Lamb, let's let's right. back up here. <laughs> Let me start this whole line of question over. <laughs> right. So anyway, uh, the the way these these tests work is is via something via a a, a biological process called gotcha. an antibody process. There you and go. what an antibody is, it's a protein that our immune system makes. But we know the biotechnology companies have figured out how to mass produce these these mm -hmm. antibodies and what they do they they act like glue and they stick to virus particles 
And so all these different brands of rapid tests out there, they all have slightly different antibodies. They all stick to the virus, Mm -hmm. but they might stick to the virus in slightly different ways. So that's why you can see some variability between each of these tests a little bit, you know, nothing, no major uh, differences. They're Hmm. kind of more nuanced. And sometimes there's even been some variability from each individual test uh, from the different types of uh, SARS-CoV-2 viruses that we see in the different variants. And Dr. Lima, the same listener has a question. If it comes back negative, should we retest just to be safe maybe the next day? Yeah, that's a good uh, good way to do it. And in fact, if you're symptomatic, that it, meaning you have a cough, you have cold, you have a fever, what we know is that the accuracy of these tests tends to increase as as you progress throughout mm-hmm. your days of symptoms. So usually like days two, days three, days four, probably there's more virus in there for your swab to collect. Uh, so therefore, that may mitigate this issue with false negativity. So if you have more tests and you're symptomatic, that's definitely great. So I want to go back to do it. So I want to go back to be very clear for our listeners in case there was some confusion. If someone has what they think could be some symptoms for the coronavirus, should they should go ahead and take the and get the test, right? I think so. And, and if they could get several and, and test over the course of several days. Here's a question. Uh, which is more it's saliva or through the, the nose? Which one is, can probably be more accurate in terms of detecting the virus or does it matter? For the rapid test right now, at least in the United States, the authorized tests, most of them, almost all of them are nasal swabs. Mm-hmm. And, and I would certainly, and this is something I tell my patients, always follow the instructions uh, because, you know, the instructions tell you where to swab, mm-hmm. follow those to a T because that's the way the test has been authorized. Do you Any think, deviation from that may not give you the results that are accurate. You think we'll still need to be testing a year from now, two years? What do you think? Yeah, this is conjecture. So you're asking me to put, you know, put yeah. on, you know, look at my crystal ball. I think so. I think the likelihood that there's another surge is a very real possibility. Uh, we have countries that still have very low vaccination rates. And honestly, all it really takes is just one person with a, a compromised immune system who mm-hmm. gets gets infected and they're basically like human petri dishes, creating mm-hmm. new variants. And then there might be one variant that becomes really, really aggressive. And finally, Dr. Lambert's very good question. Will these kinds Will these kind of tests be more available for other viruses going forward? For example, new versions as flu strains change from season to season. What are we learning from these type of tests and can they be effective for other types of viruses? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is yes. Uh, The medical community and the medical device company knows that this won't be the only virus. In fact, many of these uh, devices already now uh, are being tested for the capability to, to test for multiple uh, diseases, flu, for example, in conjunction with COVID nineteen. Let me ask you this: in terms of, and this is through your your lens, in terms of boosters, you know, we've some folks we've got that booster. If there is a opportunity to get a second booster, should you think a person should get it? Uh, or I know you, they should consult with their physicians. But I guess what is the advantage? Do we know that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we don't know that yet, and I think uh, we're co- constantly collecting the data to see if additional boosters. Uh, will will help combat the, the the pandemic. So the data is still out. What has been 
unique or, or still just as you reflect these last two years, now we're going heading into the third year with this coronavirus. What has been eye-opening for you as a scientist, as a researcher, as a doctor? Yeah. Yeah. I think what, what's been really interesting, if I really look at it from a high level, is, is the fact that all of the major stakeholders, uh, really, and by stakeholders, I mean the American public, uh, the medical community, the medical diagnostic company, we really see the value now of how testing that can be done in a decentralized manner, meaning we can do this testing in schools, we can do testing at home. I think that's here to stay. I think this new type of testing is only going to be more prevalent. And I think that's great news for our patients who will be able to take control of their health a little bit better. And I think the medical community is starting to see the value in that. All right, Dr. Weber Lamb, one of the three principal investigators for the Atlanta Center for Microsystems Engineered Point of Care Technologies, tasked with evaluating COVID diagnostic tests as part of the NIH-supported program. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good information. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And Closer Look continues on 90.1 WABE. Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Getting a commercial spaceport up and running is no small task. I tried a couple years ago and it failed miserably. And officials in Camden County on the Georgia coast know that well. They've spent over six years and some $10 million to develop a spaceport that would launch as many as 12 rockets a year. Here's a promotional video from the county from back in 2019. Today, the world is beginning the next great space race. Not one driven by fear and military might, but free market competition. For the first time, private companies are driving innovation and accelerating the pace of space exploration. This competition is dramatically lowering the cost of spaceflight and increasing the demand for launches as more researchers and corporations seek to place payloads into orbit. With deep roots in the space industry, an ideal location, and existing infrastructure, I think we all get it. Now, the fate of the project is in the hands of Camden County voters. Nearly 2,000 early ballots have already been cast in a referendum set for tomorrow about whether the county can buy the land it needs for the spaceport. Well, reporter Mary Landers has been covering all of this for The Current, a digital news outlet focused on coastal Georgia. Before that, she spent more than two decades with the Savannah Morning News. Mary, thanks for taking time. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Let's begin here. Someone somewhere, they don't want to admit it, but they're thinking, what in the world is a spaceport? Go. Go. Okay, so you know what an airport is, where (laughs) airplanes fly from. A spaceport is where space vehicles launch from. That's simple. Missiles. Mm -hmm. Ah. Um, Where did the idea for this, how did all this come about, and how did Camden County get involved in this? Uh, When you ask the county officials that same question, they say that the county, as you heard in that promo, has... Uh, roots in the the space industry. Um, And what they're referring to was that in the 60s, Camden was apparently looked at as a possible site for the launch of Apollo, Mm -hmm. uh, the Apollo mission. Um, And when they're talking about that, they were actually looking at 
Cumberland Island before it was the National Seashore. So not this particular site, but this particular site, which is now owned by Union Carbide, um, was the site where there was munitions manufacturing, and I believe there was a, a test a test launch um, from there. And this area, uh, we're assuming there were no residential residents. There was just, just just land. Is that correct? Just land where they wanted to put it, not displacing anybody. Right. In fact, uh, the the land itself, there's 4,000 acres that they want to, the county wants to buy. That 4,000 acres has a covenant on it because as you can imagine, it was a munitions manufacturing site. It was a pesticide manufacturing site. Uh, it's pretty polluted. And uh, there's a, um, a landfill there and um, hazardous waste landfill. And the, the county will not be buying that particular acreage around mm -hmm. 50 acres but the land around it has a covenant on it that prevents it from being used uh, as residential land you can't drink the water there either would this be fall under economic development uh, what did they argue being the county that such a facility would do for the community exactly economic development so it's a some somewhat rural county i mean you're, you're if you want to picture it it's right on the Florida line and right on the coast. Uh, so right down there in the corner. And, um, you know, for uh, tourism, there's Cumberland Island and St. Mary's, a beautiful little coastal town. And there is um, the St. Mary's, uh, the sub base, um, Kings Bay. So those are the economic drivers at the moment. And the, the county um, manager, the, the county commissioners view this as a way to diversify their economy. Do you know if uh, there's much of a demand for a private launch site like this, Mary? Depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> so the, <laughs> the proponents of this say uh, yes, and it's only going to get bigger. Uh, and the uh, opponents of it say the places that already um, exist are, are not full up with um, demand. So Let me ask you this, because when we talk about the opposition, then I'm imagining there are concerns about its impact on the environment. Yes, definitely. So there, at the moment, the, the vote that's going on that you mentioned 2000 people have already voted, specifically the referendum is about should the, um, the, the motion, the resolution by the county to buy that land, should that be repealed? Um, and the concern of many people is the taking on the risk of that mm -hmm. polluted land. Uh, so that's a concern. I should have mentioned when I, I mentioned that there's nobody living on that land, um, that another concern is, is from nearby residents. So a launch uh, the trajectory would take a, a rocket over Cumberland Island, which is a national seashore. So up to 300 people a day can be on Cumberland Island as visitors. Um, they would be evacuated for launches. Um, and then there's also people, well, there's people who live on Cumberland Island mm -hmm. um, because there's like pri private residences within the park, um, including on Cumber Little Cumberland Island, where there's I think about 75 residences 
Um, and those folks are not happy in large part about the idea of a, a rocket launching over their their homes. And Cumberland Island, correct me if I'm wrong, also has some beautiful, like what they reference as wild horses, like some beautiful. There are wild horses. Yeah, they're they're beautiful. I've seen pictures. Yes. Let mm-hmm. me ask you this, because when, you, when I asked you, you know, and we were having a little fun, I said, you know, what's a spaceport for someone listening? And you talked about you know, an airport, but the FAA has a role in all of this too. Is there some, reg- are they the regulatory body over this? Do they have to do any sort of feasible study or anything like that? Feasibility yeah, so study. The, the, the FAA has an interesting dual mandate in this situation. So they are mandated to both regulate the commercial space industry and to um, promote the space, the space industry. So you could picture them like if they're at a football game, they're wearing the referee stripes, but also they've got the pom poms. So <laughs> now they have a dual, and yeah. as some would say, conflicting role in this. And they have done. Um, they they manage really mm-hmm. the production of a, um, a feasibility and environmental impact study. So that was um, released last summer, the final draft of that. Um, And that was for the spaceport, uh, the operator's license. Uh, So in December, the FAA issued that license. So Camden now has, after seven years and $10 million, they have the launch operators uh, license, but that's that doesn't mean that you can launch. There's still more hoops to jump through. What has that ten million dollars been used for? What has that gone for over these years? It has gone to the production of that um, environmental impact statement. They had to hire um, a private firm. The FAA picks the firm and says, "You use this firm. It's a Virginia-based firm called Lidos um, and uh, other consultants. They've spent a lot of money on." Um, PR and consultants. But I understand a rock a rocket was actually launched from the site in 2017. How did it yeah. happen? Did, did were folks able to learn something from this and say, okay, maybe it may not be as bad? Or do you know if it was something to the effects of uh, we got some work to do here? Uh, you know, it's it was a demonstration rocket, and I don't believe it reached orbit. Um, so. Uh, you know, um, and I can't remember who did that, but it was more like an experimental, hey, here's what we could be doing here uh, kind of launch. With all the studies, and you, you just said that the county sees this, Camden County sees this as economic development. Any idea in terms of revenue and, and you know, how soon this would start coming in? I mean, you build a spaceport. Is it if you build it and they will come sort of deal here? I think it is largely the the county. Um, they hired Georgia Southern to do an economic impact, um, you know, review. Um, uh, it it I believe it it was talking about under a hundred jobs. I can't remember the exact figure, um, and the the revenue is going to depend on and who, what clients they get to come in. This is supposed to be a, a venture that's a public-private venture so mm-hmm. that they would have uh, commercial space operators come in and work. Well, let's get to tomorrow because voters will go to the polls and decide whether Camden County can 
purchase the land for the spaceport. Uh, but there is some drama behind the referendum as well, because the county tried to block it from even happening. Take us. Yes, this. It's, it's been very traumatic. So. It's like a Netflix uh, series. It, it has been. Um, the uh, so the, the ref there was a petition first. So some residents in the county discovered this uh, part of the Georgia Constitution that says, here's how you can um, basically recall a resolution of the county rather than recalling a, a person, which is something that we we see done mm -hmm. fairly regularly. Uh, this is recalling an action of the, the county. So they just had to get enough signatures on a petition and they handed that into the probate judge. The probate judge approved it and set up the, um, the referendum for March 8th. Uh, early voting has started already. Mm -hmm. uh, in the meantime, the county has challenged that whole process saying this, this first saying that uh, this, the, the process was fraudulent, that people had signed the petition more than once and there was a whole court hearing about that and regular old citizens were hauled up to the stand and forced to testify why over the course of two years they signed this petition more than once um it wasn't a great look politically because you had like you know 70 year old woman sitting on the stand saying well i forgot that i signed the first time so wow. i signed again and it, it wasn't there's nothing wrong with signing twice it's not illegal to sign a petition of this type twice uh so that was thrown out and then um that that effort to overturn was thrown out and then more recently uh there was an effort to, by the county again, to say uh, this whole, you've misinterpreted the, um, the constitution and this should never, the results should never be um, certified from this election. Wow, are you willing so to- So basically the county, the county um, sued its own probate judge. Mm. Are you willing to go on the record with any predictions or are you gonna stay out of that? No, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm on the edge of my seat. There's more. There's more to it, too. On Friday night, the county commission met in a special called meeting. And at that meeting, they appointed members to the Spaceport Authority, which had been constituted uh, or created by legislation in uh, 2019, but didn't have any members. And they appointed these members. Um, Friday, and the concern is that <clears throat> the concern from the opposition is that these members of the the newly formed Spaceport Authority could then be the ones who go and buy the property from Union Carbide, because the referendum specifically uh, notes that the county commission cannot buy. And. But the Spaceport the Authority is and not technically an extension of Camden County government, technically. That's that's the fear. That Aha, it is like a Netflix call. series, Mary, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, lots of drama. Um, well, <laughs> we shall wait and see. Um, we'll bring you back. I feel like this is going to be, this is going to have a lot more drama to it. Mary Landers, reporter with The Current, a digital news outlet focused on coastal Georgia. And we've been talking about the years long saga of the Camden County Space 
Port. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Fascinating. You're welcome. And Closer Look continues here on 90.1 WABE. Amplifying Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. As dangerous weather events become more frequent, and we know all this has climate changes, there's a population that is particularly at risk, and those are folks who are incarcerated. Now, journalists at The Intercept have been tracking how extreme heat, flooding, and wildfires have threatened the lives of people behind bars for their project. The project is called Climate and Punishment. And one person they profiled was Justin Phillips. He was recently released after spending five years in a Texas prison. And he told The Intercept he was often exposed to extreme heat. I was incarcerated at units with no air conditioner. And the temperatures were getting to 130 degree margin. There's nothing you can do. It's like being locked in a hot car. You can't go nowhere. You're in a, a little eight by 10 cell. There were so many people committing suicide and drugs were running rampant because people wanted to escape. And if you're not strong-minded, you're not going to make it. It was a horrible experience. And the extreme heat risk is a particular problem here in Georgia, according to The Intercept. Here for more is Eileen Brown, one of the reporters on the project. Eileen, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I think often when we've been having all these conversations about the climate change and the climate change crisis, and we've talked about so many different populations and communities, those who are incarcerated probably fall at the very bottom of that list, if at all, people are bringing awareness to. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, um, you know, the thing is, these are some of the most vulnerable people to the impacts of the climate crisis because um, they're in a situation where they can't move or make decisions for themselves when pressures like storms, flooding, wildfires, and heat um, become more severe. How did you all come to work on this project? Um, I would say, you know, as an environmental justice reporter, um, I see it as my responsibility to look for stories about um, the people most vulnerable to the impacts of the climate crisis. Um, it became clear to me uh, over the course of my reporting that people who are incarcerated are deeply vulnerable. Um, so I, I teamed up with my colleague, Akil Harris, who is a senior research engineer at The Intercept, um, really knows how to work with data and um, using his expertise and, and some of my reporting around environmental issues, um, we were able to create this really wide look at how this issue is impacting more than 6,500 jails, prisons, detention centers across the U.S. So this was across the U.S. Uh, you didn't just focus on one particular region here. You identified flooding, wildfires, high heat. Let's start with flooding. And for our listeners, take us through how this might affect folks who are incarcerated. Yeah, sure. So we identified more than 600 um, detention facilities across the U.S. facing major to extreme flood risk. Um, and we particularly honed in on the state of Florida where it came to flooding. This year, um, this cross-city detention facility, uh, state prison um, in Florida, 
was impacted by um, very significant flooding and it led to an evacuation. In that case, one of the people that we interviewed who was incarcerated there said that he had ankle deep water come into his cell through the sewage system. So there was human waste um, floating in this water, really nasty conditions. Um, and he said, you know, they were fed um, in, in this situation with the feeded water um, before being evacuated hours later. Um, you know, in other cases, people are um, dealing with uh, storms that take out um, power, uh, you know, impact ventilation and functioning toilets. Um, and, you know, looking particularly at Georgia, um, we kind of ranked states for um, flood risk and Georgia was number 10 um, for the number of facilities um, in the state with major to extreme flood risk. We identified, um, I think it was um, 19 facilities in Georgia, including the Atlanta City Detention Center mm -hmm. uh, with significant flood risk. And uh, Eileen, these are state and federal correctional facilities. So all of these private run, all of these yeah, it's across the um, spectrum. So state run, county run, city run, federally run. Did you all talk to any officials? Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, in Florida, where it came to flooding, we, you know, the Florida Corrections Department told us that um, the facility had flooded after the evacuation. So they denied the account of this person who was incarcerated there. Um, you know, and really said that they're, um, you know, all the corrections departments we spoke to really said that they have robust evacuation plans, um, robust emergency planning. But the problem is um, no one wants to share any details. Um, mm -hmm. Time and time again, what I've heard as a reporter, what incarcerated people and their families have heard is that um, it's too much of a security risk to share any details of what what will happen if a facility is threatened by flooding. And, you know, given um, many of these agencies track records for protecting the health of incarcerated people, especially um, amid this pandemic, people just don't really trust that um, these plans that they can't see uh, will be enough to protect them. So they said that providing these details were security risk. Did you yeah, raise an eyebrow yeah. to that? I mean, I'm a journalist, so I'm 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 not being biased, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, and this is like the problem across the board where it comes, or another problem where it comes to the issue of like incarceration and climate risks, is that there's always this tension between the the risk that this whatever the disaster is is causing and um, the perceived risk of the people who are incarcerated. Um, you know, some of the experts I spoke to said that that actually, you know, this idea that um, the people themselves are risks to the community mm -hmm. really creates a um, deterrent when it comes to making decisions about whether or not to evacuate people, which, you know, means transporting sometimes hundreds or thousands of people across the state um, during, during a storm, for example. Mm. The voice you hear is Eileen Brown. She's a reporter for The Intercept and who worked on its climate and punishment project, looking at how incarcerated people are at elevated risk from extreme weather events, 
fueled by the changing, ongoing changes in our climate. Let's talk about high heat, something we all here in Georgia know something about. Take our listeners through what you all found with this. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we found that about a third of detention facilities across the U.S., are in areas that have historically had more than 50 days a year with the heat index above 90 degrees, um, enough to make people dealing with a range of health issues sick. Um, A lot of places do not have air conditioning in their prisons. Um, Texas and Florida in particular um, have a big problem with with lacking air conditioning in their state prisons. I looked a little bit more into Georgia and, you know, historically about 80% of detention facilities in Georgia are at that level that I'm talking about, you know, located in counties with more than 50 days annually over 90 degrees. Um, And so you're saying for our listeners, I I want for our listeners to make sure we're making the connection. So you're saying these, uh, these high days of high heat possibly impact the air conditioning units over, you know, overwhelms them. We would know what's going to happen. Sometimes we get brownouts and all that stuff. So you're saying this is directly related. You all believe this is directly related to that when you have so many days of high heat, putting the pressures on the, the systems, the air conditioning, HVAC systems, whatever, in these facilities. Yeah. And, you know, actually Georgia state prisons, although most of them do have air conditioning, there is not universal air conditioning across the system. Um, but I think that that the point that you're making is really important where, you know, with heat, we were able to look at projections for, for how much hotter it's going to get. And that will put a lot of pressure on, um, the air conditioning systems where, where they're installed, um, in a lot of, in States like California, where they're dealing with, and dealing with a lot of blackouts, um, prisons are often the first to be asked to turn to um, turn to generator power. Um, really? So, yeah. And I mean, in Georgia, like I said, right now or historically, 80 percent of detention facilities have been located um, in counties with more than 50 days annually over 90 degrees by 2100. All of them will be at that level. You know, historically, we've had Georgia has had no facilities in places with more than 10 days over 105 degrees by 2100, 289 facilities will be at that level. So that's 95% of the facility detention facilities in Georgia. So the issue is becoming um, much more acute. Hmm. And before we let you go, I want to get to wildfires. And we know of the fact the last probably decade, we've seen more and more uh, of wildfires and not just out West where we typically think that we see more of them. Make this connection for our listeners with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the most surprising things that we found when we were looking at wildfire data was that um, Florida, there were actually more um, state run facilities in Florida facing extreme wildfire threats than there were in California. Um, You know, even in Georgia, we we identified a handful of facilities with significant um, wildfire threats. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, I think California often gets a lot of attention for having these inmate um, firefighter crews. Georgia also actually has um, fire crews made up of incarcerated people. Mm-hmm. So the um, with wildfires um, increasing across the U.S., far beyond um, California, a place like Georgia will increasingly be impacted, as will the people 
who are incarcerated. Have you heard from any of the facilities or any entity or organization disputing your findings? Um, I mean, I think that, again, the main thing we get from corrections facilities is that everything is fine. We have great plans. Don't worry about it. Um, but, you know, it hasn't been hard to find people who are incarcerated and their family members who are describing um, inhaling lots of smoke, dealing with power outages because of wildfires, um, or, you know, dealing with kind of poorly run evacuations. Is this the end for this project? Are you all going to do any follow-up work? No, we plan to continue to build this series and add stories um, as disasters hit and incarcerated people are impacted and as we're able to um, reach more people who are dealing with these problems. I think there's many, many stories to tell here. And how long did it take you all in, in getting your interviews, getting all your data, and then putting this project together? How long did it take? It was more than a year. You know, we started talking about it at the end of um, last summer, I think. And um, yeah, just published a few weeks ago. So it was a lot. What's the feedback been like from the public? It's been good. I mean, um, we've had a number of people say that they'd never thought about this issue, um, you know, to your to your point at the beginning of the of the segment. Um, and, you know, we've had a lot of people who are thinking about this say that our this interactive map that we developed where you can search um, almost any facility in the U.S. for its climate risks um, is it, they're hoping will be very useful in their continued work and advocacy. And we'll have a link from our website to that. Eileen Brown is a reporter for The Intercept who worked on its climate and punishment project, looking at how incarcerated folks are at elevated risk from extreme weather events fueled by the changing, ever-changing with climate. Fascinating reporting project. Thank you so much, Eileen, for coming on the program and sharing all this. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Sam Whitehead is our senior producer. Our other producers, Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, if you missed any of today's program, it is always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So, Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on the ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 